if you'd open your Bibles to Esther chapter 1, page 775. 775 in your pew Bibles. <clears throat> and uh, we began this series last week, thanks again to the help of all of our children, as we read through the entire story of Esther. And Esther is a very unique book in the Bible. In fact, uh, many scholars and theologians and pastors who have gone before us have wondered if Esther really even ought to be in our Bibles, if it really um, speaks to us as God's Word. Um, but I truly think that Esther has wonderful things to teach us. And um, we'll read through chapter 1 this morning, but as I tried to explain last week, you really need to have the entire story in mind if you're going to understand what Esther is trying to teach us. So let me just, uh, let me just if you were not here last week, just give you a very quick summary of what happens in this book. Chapters 1 and 2 begin with a very opulent Persian, or in the opulent Persian palace and with a huge party or banquet. And um, Queen Vashti, in the end, de defies her husband, the king. And uh, as a result of that, the king um, gathers up um, a number of beautiful virgins in the empire, gathers them all into his harem, Esther alone. Esther is a Jew, and she alone pleases the king. And then her cousin Mordecai actually foils an assass assassination plot against the king. Um, in chapters 3 through 8, that, that, uh, um, that act sort of gets forgotten, but it comes to light again in the next chapters. Uh, there's conflict between this Mordecai, who is also a Jew, and uh, Haman, and that's the name that we... Uh, we tried to drown out last week with a lot of hissing and noise, but in these chapters, that, uh, um, that conflict begins to escalate. And then Esther actually dares uh, to seek uninvited audience with the king at the risk of, of her own life. She entertains the king at two of her own banquets, and, um, and then Mordecai is honored after one of the king's sleepless nights and uh, Haman, his plot is turned against him, and in the end, the Jews are delivered from annihilation, and, uh, and they are actually empowered. And so that's uh, sort of a brief summary of, of the story of Esther. We're going to look at the first chapter today. I'm going to uh, skip over some list of names and things like that, so hopefully you can keep up with where we are. Let's read from Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest 
who were in the citadel of Susa. And then it talks about the glory of, of the king's uh, palace. Drop down to verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. When Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her, royal position to, <clears throat> give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So, the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom to each province in his own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongues that every man should be ruler over his own household. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You have to sort of catch the humor in that uh, story. You have to remember the king, the last thing the king wanted or all of his nobles wanted was to, for word to get out, right? That Vashti had had uh, not listened or, and obeyed to her husband. At the end of the chapter, they're actually the ones sending dispatches to all the corners of the kingdom, letting the world know exactly that, that Vashti disobeyed her husband. A lot of irony in this book. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, a number of years ago now, J.B. Phillips wrote a book by the title, Your God is Too Small. I don't know how many people actually read that book, but it seems like the title has stuck. It seems not many of us are looking, are in the market for a little God. After all, Small went out with the Chevy Chevette and a little Cape Cod on Main Street. We like things big, right? 
When the school bully begins to approach, when he's coming in our direction, we don't want a little brother to protect us, right? We want a big brother with big muscles and facial hair. Little is gone, big is in. And so it seems to be with our God. We do not have much use for a tiny God. We desire an oversized God to tackle the big oversized problems of this world. The book of Esther begins with one of those big worldly problems that needs to be overcome. His name is Xerxes. At least that's his Greek name. His name in Hebrew sounds something like Ahasuerus, which to the Jewish ear sounded something like King Headache, which I believe we are again supposed to chuckle at, because while Xerxes really was no laughing matter, in the grand scheme of salvation history, it turns out he was nothing more than a headache. And yet, for the people of his own day, the people that Xerxes interacted with and had power over, Xerxes was a major migraine. If, if you were not here last week, we said that this book seems to be built and constructed on the foundation of banquets. We also said that it begins with a banquet that began with 180 days of festivities, ended with seven days of its own, just a banquet. And we wonder, did that really happen? Could people have gathered together for six months of partying? And yet, there is extra biblical evidence that this gathering actually did happen. The Greek historian Herodotus reports that Xerxes once hosted a war council that sounds patently similar to what we have here in Esther 1. It seems Xerxes gathered up just about everybody who was somebody in his realm with the intent of impressing them enough with his glory and the wealth of his kingdom that they would eagerly join him in doing battle with his arch-nemesis, the Greeks. According to Herodotus, this is the speech or part of the speech that Xerxes gave to his assembled nobles at that time. This is what he said. For this cause I have summoned you together, <clears throat> that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intent to bridge the Hellespont. Okay, and the Hellespont, it's called the Dardanelles today. It's a body of water between Turkey, so Asia really, and, and um, Eastern Europe. So it's a pathway into Europe so that he could deal with the Greeks. This happened about 480 B.C. So it's my intent to bridge the Hellespont and lead my army through Europe to Greece that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. You saw that Darius, my father, was minded to make an expedition against these men, but he is dead. And it was not granted him to punish them. And I, on his and all the Persians' behalf, will never rest till I have taken and burnt Athens. As for you, this is how you shall best please me. When I declare the time for your coming, every one of you must appear and with a good will. And whosoever comes with his army best equipped shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. 
That was the reason of Xerxes' banquet. That was the reason for the opulence of that banquet. He wanted his subjects to see the luxury that they could share in if only they would rally to his side when called upon. Maybe the most famous or perhaps infamous story about Xerxes is that when he did try to bridge the Hellespont, a storm came up and wiped out his first bridge. So this is what Xerxes did. He he decided that he would punish the Hellespont itself. Okay, this is the kind of guy he was. He had his soldiers throw fetters into the water, into the strait. Then he had them lash the water with 300 lashes and brand it with hot irons. And while they were doing this, they were the entire time supposed to shout curses at the water. And to top that all off, he then had the builders of that first bridge all beheaded. Now perhaps you see how for little Judah, scattered among the Persian kingdom, Xerxes might just be a major headache. When a crazy man threatens to exterminate you, you quiver, and not just a little. King Headache was not just full of bravado, he had the army to back him up. And when you're up against a supersized ego like his, doesn't it seem best to have a supersized God on your side? A God who can stand up to a headache like Xerxes and put him in his place? Isn't that the kind of God that you want? Honestly, isn't that the kind of God that all of us are looking for, even today? A big God, a God who can solve big problems in big ways. As I said earlier, our our world too is full of big problems to be solved. One of them I think we can think of, his name may not be Xerxes, but maybe it's Putin who is just as much of a headache in this world right now. He's got his sights set on Ukraine like Xerxes did on Greece. He gives one command and thousands upon thousands die. Markets crash around the world. People in Africa begin to starve all over Europe. Heating bills double. Your own retirement funds begin to dwindle. And all because of one man. One headache. But you don't have to look hard to find more big problems in life, right? What about China and Taiwan? What about the drug cartels and the opiates that flood our streets? Or what about our economy, labor shortages and supply chain issues and massive inflation? Or how about global warming and climate change? And then there are health concerns like cancer and COVID and the list goes on. And what about crime, mass shootings in schools and even at parades? These are all big problems, friends, big worries, big headaches. And quite honestly, they make us feel very small, don't they? Small like those Jews scattered around Persia. We feel like pawns. Pieces moved here and there at the whims of others makes us feel helpless, makes us feel like we're victims. 
In situations like this, people have always looked for big saviors, haven't we? That's how people like Hitler come to fame. They offer us simple solutions to our big problems. People who say that the world really isn't all that complicated. We're making it out to be something it's not. The problem is right over here in plain sight. You just don't have the courage to admit it or do something about it. But I do, they say, and I'll fix it. I'll get rid of the problem for you with my big hands and my big ideas and my big army. And we all get in line and we say, okay, save us. Save us. And we often think the same way about God. When we're feeling small, like our hands are tied and there's no way out, we want to know that our God is great, that our God is big, that our God is in control. We want to know that our God is alive and that He cares and that He hasn't forgotten that we exist. And then we come to church on a Sunday morning, and what do we get? A sermon. Words. And words like, like love and humility and service. Or maybe we get a little water sprinkled on our heads, or a little piece of bread, or a tiny thimble full of juice food that won't even carry you over till lunch. And it just doesn't seem like enough. It doesn't seem big enough. And I want to be clear, friends, there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting a big God. After all, most of the Bible is quite enthusiastic in describing how big our God really is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's big. And when the world fell into sin, God sent a flood that covered the entire earth. That's big. And when his people were slaves in Egypt, God sent mighty plagues on Pharaoh. And then he parted the Red Sea so that his, his people could walk through on dry land. That's a big God. Our God didn't need bridges to cross that sea. Our God knocked out Goliath with one punch. Our God answered Elijah with fire and, and sent the colleagues of Baal scurrying for cover. And then there was Jesus. Jesus multiplied bread. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus quieted stormy seas without fetters or whips. Jesus even raised the people he loved from the dead. The Bible is full of examples, friends, of how big our God really is. Redemption always seems to come through, through incredible, mighty acts, the acts of our God. No, the problem isn't with wanting a big God. The problem comes when we put that God in a box. The problem comes when, when we say we have a big God who works in big ways, who works in marvelous, miraculous ways, and if God doesn't work in these big, marvelous, miraculous ways, if he doesn't come running to the rescue 
right when we need Him, like the guardians of the galaxy. Well then, He must not be here. He must not care. He must not be good. He must not be God. And what happens then when we we put God in the big God box is we miss the God of the book of Esther. You see, the God of Moses is a loud God. God of Esther is quiet. The God of Elijah is a spectacular God. The God of Esther is small. But he's the same God. You see, Esther may be unique from the rest of the Bible, but there is a definite direction here to the book of Esther. There's an undercurrent to Esther. And it turns out to be the very same current that runs through all of the great salvation stories in the Bible. It's the movement towards the deliverance of God's people. It's the movement toward God keeping His covenant. It's the movement toward the salvation of the Jews and of the church and through them the salvation of the whole world. People like our neighbors and our parents and our children and our co-workers the salvation of those, all those that he has loved, that he has chosen in Jesus Christ. That's the direction, that's the current of all of Scripture, even Esther. Esther is a story that begins with lots of bravado the bravado of the world and the certain doom of God's people, God's little people, God's overlooked people. But the book ends with their salvation. A mighty king is revealed to be just a comic figure. And powerful Persian men are outwitted by a little Jewish girl. And this little Esther, chosen to be a queen more subservient than her predecessor, well, she ends up directing the action, even reversing the laws of the mighty Medes and Persians, which we all know cannot be revoked or repealed. And in the background, we hear what the psalmist heard in Psalm 2, the laughter of the one who is enthroned in the heavens. But even though it's in the background, Esther means for us to hear that laughter because we so often miss it. And we miss it because we're looking for a bigger, louder God. What do I mean? I mean we miss God in our lives. We're healed of our diseases. But you know, those healings seem more related to modern medicine than they do to a miracle. And sometimes we're not healed at all. And so we ask, where is God? Is He here? 
Is he real? Our daily bread fills our cupboards and our freezers, but, but it's not like manna falling from the sky. And so we wonder, is God really here? Where is he? We have a farmer's market that, that raises lots of money for the poor. And yet, we all worked hard for that, didn't we? I mean, wasn't it our effort? Wasn't it our lemonade stands, our creativity, our ingenuity, our generosity? We have new people joining the church. But not a lot of Damascus Road kind of stories. I mean, our stories are more ordinary, aren't they? We hear them all the time. Well, we sort of wandered away from God when we went to college and and then we got married, and when we had children, we thought, well, maybe our children need to be raised in the church. Sort of ordinary stories. And we wonder, where's God? Where are all the miracles? We go to work. We take care of our families. We shop for groceries. We splash a little water on our children. We teach, we pray, we teach, we pray, and then we wonder if God has anything at all to do with it. Where's the evidence of the big God in all of that? Where's the divine? But then we read Esther, and here we meet the God that we know. In fact, he's a quiet God. He's not loud. And he's not big. At least not big in the sense of making that grand entrance. In fact, he's small. So small that sometimes you can't really tell if he's there or not. The entire book of Esther never even mentions this God. No one prays to him in this book. Not one miracle is performed in this book. And in this way, the story of, perhaps, of Esther is perhaps more unlike any other book in the Bible, but more like the story of our lives than just about any other book in the Bible. When you read Esther... You wonder sometimes where God is. Events just seem to happen by chance. First, we find a king who decides to host a banquet, a war council, a pretty common thing in his day. And at his party, he has a little too much to drink, which is also a pretty common thing, not just in his day, but in our day as well. But when he gets a little tipsy, he has the bright idea to show off his wife to the rest of the guys and while it may be stupid and it may be boorish, again, it's not all that uncommon. And when she tells him to go jump in the lake, she's not going to do that sort of thing. She won't be treated like a two-dimensional sex object to be ogled by the boys. Well, who can blame her? It's all fairly ordinary stuff. For example, there's a there's a line of bars just a stone's throw from our house. And every Saturday night, I can hear the voices of, 
of people who have had a little too much to drink. As they're getting in their cars to leave, I can hear their shouts. And many of those people make stupid decisions that, well, they sounded smart at the time. And many Vashtis, for various reasons, object to those stupid decisions and refuse to condone them. And usually on Sunday or Monday, you can read about the consequences in the local newspaper. It's ordinary stuff. We see it all the time, every weekend, and more often than that. But in Vashti's case here in Esther, we get to see where the consequences lead. The king replaces his queen with a better model. And the new queen, well, she happens to have a cousin who happens to save the king's life. And this cousin also happens to tick off the prime minister, who fosters then a plan to take vengeance not just on this cousin, but, but on his entire race of people. And on and on the story goes, just like that. Little coincidences. Ordinary decisions that in the end flip the entire story on its head. Vashti sets in motion a chain of events that culminates not in the destruction of God's people, but in the deliverance of his people. Fulfilling the promise of an ancient covenant made ages before in a faraway place to faraway people. So here's the question. Is your God small enough to get involved in those kinds of details? Is your God small enough to crouch down and crawl unseen into the dumbest and most mundane decisions of our lives and the lives of the people around us? Is your God small enough to orchestrate and influence and persuade every ordinary, even creepy and embarrassing detail of your life so that in the end there is salvation? Salvation for you and salvation for all those whom God has called. Is your God small enough to do that? To care about every little detail of your life? Whether you brush your teeth tomorrow or not? Listen a moment to what the ancient writers of our catechism had to say about our God in all of his bigness and all of his smallness. They wrote this, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them 
that leaf and blade and rain and drought and fruitful and lean years and food and drink and health and sickness and prosperity and poverty and all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand friends if you ever get discouraged looking for God and thinking that he doesn't care thinking that you're overlooked thinking that you might be forgotten Maybe your God is too big. And maybe you need to think smaller. Maybe if you examine the details and and put your ordinary life under a microscope, maybe if you could see how Esther became a queen. And maybe if you could see how a little Jewish boy born to a teenage mom in some backwater town that no one has ever heard of, died a criminal's death. Maybe if you could see how that little Jewish boy became a king of heaven and earth, well, then maybe you would see God. And maybe you would see how all things are working together for the salvation of those who love him and those he loves. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Lord God, give us eyes, eyes of faith, to recognize that you are at work even when our physical eyes may not see it. Give us eyes to faith, our eyes of faith to see that you have not left us and you have not abandoned this world, you have not abandoned our lives, but you are here. And you will always be here. And you will continue to pursue your plan of salvation for all your people and it shall not be defeated. Help us to see beyond, Lord, what we see sometimes in our lives. To see beyond the powers that we deem our powers and to see that your hand is truly the hand that takes all of the events of this world and works them out for the good of our salvation. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.